0: called Project Hope. We're in week three of this series. This series is going to take us all the way up into Thanksgiving, and then just this idea, this word hope is going to be our theme uh, for 2015. So we're just excited about this word that God has spoken into our church, and so at both campuses, Pastor Jamie is working through a series called Project Hope in Williamsburg, and then we're switching up a little bit. He's going to be here, I'm going to be there. And uh, a huge part of this idea of hope is also, which is not our message tonight, but this idea of hope of relationship. We might talk about this in our series, but we hope that you have a hope in your heart to go deep in relationship with people in a spiritual family, and so life groups are a huge part of our church, and throughout the last several years, we've always taken what we call a term approach to life groups, where they start, they'll run for six or eight weeks, then they'll stop, and we'll take off about a month or two, and then we restart, and then we do about four terms throughout the year, and just throughout the summer, the governance team really felt like God was challenging us to take our life group ministry to a another step, and so Steve and Lori Ruggiero, who who are on the governance team, are going to own that ministry for us. They've got a team that they're building that they're going to put together to help direct it, Uh, but we're going to have three different kinds of life groups that are going to be offered to you. One is going to be the more traditional type of life group, but instead of that following a term base, we're going to identify people in the church who are called to be life group leaders, who just have a ministry of hospitality and encouragement operating in their life, people that we trust in their character to say you can follow them as they follow Christ, and they're going to open up their homes. There's going to be groups that meet in those homes and they're going to get to decide how they want to flow. Whether they want to meet every week, whether they want to meet twice a month, when they're going to break, when they're not going to break, and they're just going to take their ideas and their materials and submit it to the leadership team so we can make sure that everything that's happening in those groups is something that's consistent with the church. And so we're going to offer those. We're going to have activity-based groups that are going to be happening because not everybody who comes to the church is ready for a relationally intensive environment. You with me? And then you might have people that you're reaching out to that you want them to get to know some people at the church, but the idea of going to a life group is a little bit too personal, and so there's going to be groups that might be mountain biking. I've, you know, I'm a, a big into shooting sports, and so uh, I'm going to be able to get a shooting group that's going to be uh, getting started this fall, and so lots of people in our church who are leaders, people that we trust have interests. They're already doing things, like Debbie Bell has crafting divas that's been meeting in her home for some time now, and so helping to pioneer this idea of activity-based groups. And then the third one, there's going to be more classroom type experiences. And so we do a biblical parenting class every year. We do Total Money Makeover. They're, they're more uh, uh, teaching type settings. And so Stephen, and Laurie, and their team are going to be talking about how we can expand those three kinds of touch points. So isn't that good? It's exciting stuff that's happening here at City Life. And so, all right, so let's, let's, uh, let's, let's do a little bit of recap for people maybe who haven't been here for the last couple of weeks. So the, the first week we got into the series, we asked the question when you think of the word hope, what comes to mind? And what we found is that lots of people said lots of different things because the word hope means different things to different people. When you think of it from the perspective of a human emotion, but when you think of it from the perspective of a biblical virtue, it means something very specific. And I think Romans 4.18 gives us one of the greatest definitions of hope that we find throughout all of Scripture. It says, even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping. Believing that he would become the father of many nations, for God had said to him, That's how many descendants that you will have. This is the virtue of hope. This is the kind of hope that God says you should be able to have this feeling in your heart that we're calling a virtue because of who His Spirit is inside of us. That when your circumstances say that there should be no hope, even then you hope still. Abraham, he's 100 years old. His wife's in her 90s. He's got a promise that he's going to be the father of nations, and they've not yet had one child together, yet they did not lose hope. And that's not a human emotion. That's a virtue. And in 1 Peter 3.15, which is our life verse for this series here at the Newport News campus, it says, when the world comes to us and asks us about the hope we have, we should be prepared to give an answer. They're not awestruck by hope that is an emotion, because the world is filled with hope that is emotion. What the world is lacking is hope that is a virtue. What the world is longing for is a witness and a demonstration of hope that can well up inside of a person's heart when their circumstances say that they should only be in despair that's the kind of church that we want to be and that's one of the reasons why I believe that God's calling us to this place uh, to be our word for 2015 is that we're going to be a people of hope in this region I am excited about this message tonight because I, I feel there are going to be people here that, 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 that the way we're coming at hope and I'm telling you it, it's going to change the way that you live it's going to change the way that you live In 165 B.C., there was a man by the name of Judas Maccabee who had only a few thousand warriors at his side, and they stood in the face of one of the greatest armies of his day. He had learned from his father, Mattathias, that there are times that you take the field of battle not because you have any expectation of victory, but there are times in history where somebody needs to take a stand. There's times in history where where righteous people need to stand against evil, even if it means it's going to cost you everything, as it did his father Mattathias just a year before. See, all of this got started because a couple of centuries before, there was this guy, Alexander the Great, maybe you've heard of him, had conquered the world, and when he died, he, he, he left no pathway to his succession. So all of his generals began to war. All of his generals had this hope of, I'm going to be the next great world leader. And so they, they carved out parts of, of Alexander the Great's empire, and then they began to fight with each other. And one was the Seleucid dynasty up in the region of modern-day Syria. One was the Ptolemaic dynasty, which was down in the region of Egypt. The problem is, is that Israel was stuck in between of these two warring nations, and for decades, for centuries, they fought, and Israel changed hands back and forth. Oftentimes, Israel was just the place that wars were fought, much like it is today. And there came a point in time where the Seleucid dynasty overpowered the Ptolemaic dynasty. They took control of Israel. And after several successions of kings, there was a man by the name of Antiochus IV Epiphanes who said, I'm going to outlaw all of Judaism. Not only am I going to rule this land, but I'm not going to be like my father was. I'm going to tell them that if you're going to be a part of our kingdom, which you are, because we've conquered you, you're going to worship our gods, which to the Jewish people would have been pagan gods. But he didn't stop there. He said, we're going to outlaw any type of ritualistic practice that's part of your religion. Mattathias, who was an obscure priest, says, not me, not my family. I don't, it, it might cost us everything, but we will not bend our knee to a pagan god. COURAGE people rallied to his cause, and they began this guerrilla warfare campaign, and, and much to the surprise of Antiochus IV Epiphanes, they began to win some battles. And so he says, I'm sending my whole army down there. I don't know who these people think that they are, but I am one of the greatest leaders of my day and my time. And so they came, and they conquered. They sacked Jerusalem. They went into the Jewish temple as Gentiles, which was forbidden. They erected an altar to Zeus, which was forbidden. And then on that altar, they began to sacrifice pigs just to make their desecration of the temple a threefold insult. It did not have the effect that they thought that it would. Thousands of people began to rally to the cause of Mattathias. They began to win victories that they should not have won, but people began to die, Mattathias being one of them. The Jewish people called them the Maccabees. It was not their last name. Maybe you thought that, right? Maccabee in Hebrew means the hammer because they just kept pounding away at this foreign nation. They would not give up. 165 B.C., Judas Maccabee, one of the five sons of Mattathias, with just a few thousand warriors, stepped into battle on this day. Nobody even gave them a prayer, but on that day they did the impossible. Not just on that day, but a series of battles. They began to defeat every general that Antiochus sent until they vanquished their nation of this foreign oppressor, these few thousand warriors. They did what's seldom done throughout any time in history were so few, could defeat so many. Eighty years of political freedom they ushered in for the nation of Israel, something that the Israelites had not seen for centuries. They come back from the field of battle and they go into the temple because now it needs to be cleansed. They have an opportunity now to to revive their religious practices, these things that are so sacred. And so they begin to follow after all the things that the Mosaic Law says that they have to do. And one of them is it's time for the candle on the altar to be relit. It's what we would recognize to be a menorah. And there's seven places where oil can be placed. And so they took all the oil that they had and they put it into each of the seven kind of reservoirs and they lit it, but the problem is they only had enough oil to fill it all once, which could only burn for one day. And their command that they had been given that was handed down generation after generation was that this flame in the temple shall never go out. But they only had enough oil for one day. Now, I'm going to tell you the end of the story, but I'm going to make you wait for it. I know, I know. You might call that manipulation. I I call it a climatic turn in in the sermon. All right, Matthew 5, 1 through 12. I I wanted to create an understanding in us of the mindset of the people that Jesus was talking to. Because we forget this sometimes, right? We we read these stories in Scripture, and, and we forget that things have been happening in history before they got to this day. And the things that have happened to them in history, like the things that happened to us in history, it shapes our perspective. It gives us a filter. And so here's Jesus. He's in his second year of ministry. He's got three years of ministry. The second one is called his year of popularity. People keep flocking out and coming to him by the groves. Many think that he might be the Messiah, but they're really looking not for a spiritual Messiah. They're looking for a political Messiah. If you're looking at a map, you've got the Sea of Galilee, and then he is on the the hillside region just to the west of the Sea of Galilee. One day he saw the crowds gathering, and Jesus went up on the mountainside, and he sat down, and his disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. And God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. I think the people in the crowd, for the most part, when he was done this intro to his sermon, they were saying, are you kidding me? That's what you've got for us today? You see, because this audience, many of the religious leaders began to follow Jesus because they wanted to understand who this person is that the people were flocking to. These elderly religious leaders are the children of the generation that lived during the freedom that was won for them by the Maccabean Revolt. These people, they were just one one generation away from a people that were born and lived during a time of total and complete freedom. They lived in a nation and a country that had the privilege of self-determination. Then the Roman Empire comes in, sweeps in. It's like the, 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 the Greeks all over again, and they are just absolutely crushed. They're swept right back into oppression. They're coming out because they're hoping that this man by the name of Jesus is the next Mattathias. They are hoping that this obscure rabbi could be… They've heard about his power, raising people from the dead, walking on water, turning water into wine, delivering people that are… They, they, no one has ever demonstrated the kind of power that surely he must be the one that's going to lead us to freedom. So, so what if this was Hampton Roads? Let's just just make it real for us. What if Hampton Roads was the place where ISIS, this hard terrorist group, had a foothold in the world? Now, we know that's impossible because we've got the greatest military in the world, and many of you are in it. Come on, but just just, just help me out here. So, imagine if that was us, what we read in the paper, what's happening in that part of the world. This was Jesus's reality of His day, You should read Killing Jesus. It's an amazing book if you want to gain some insight to how barbaric life was under Roman rule. Can you imagine if we lived as an oppressed people? Can you imagine if there was a foreign power that gained a foothold in this place that we call home and we had no more freedom and no more rights and we got wind of somebody who began to demonstrate power that was otherworldly and supernatural and we wandered out to hear him speak and he began his message by, you got you to gotta be meek, you, you got you, you to be merciful, right? Persecution, It's a good thing. Are you tracking with me? We read this because we know it as the Beatitudes. We read this and we name it that because we know the end of the story. But they were in the story. They were in the middle of history. This is not the kind of teaching that they wanted to hear from the one who was supposed to lead them to freedom. The word Beatitude means a state of mind that is blissful. In some of your texts, depending on what Bible you've got, it starts by saying, Blessed are those. That word in the Greek means to be fully satisfied by God. So it's rightly called the Beatitudes because when you're fully satisfied by God on the inside, you're walking in a place none other than a state of bliss despite of your circumstances, which is why the vision statement of our church is heaven now, heaven forever. What we see here happening in history with this teaching is a hope collision. The people have come that day because they have a hope for political freedom. The people are coming that day because they are one generation removed from a people who demonstrated such courage and such strength and such willingness to stand in the face of impossible odds and they are hoping that this man by the name of Jesus is gonna lead them on the next revolt. Jesus is coming to them and he's got a completely different message of hope. Jesus is coming to them and he's saying, hey, I understand that you're desperate for hope, but the hope that I have come to give you is not a hope that is political. It's a hope that's of the heart. You see, the the Hebrew language has this word, and it's called kesel. It's K-E-C-E-L. It's pronounced kesel, and it's translated lots of different ways throughout the Old Testament. And one of them, it's translated the word power. Psalm 38, 7, it says, for my loins are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I'm going to explain this in a minute, but that word for loin, that word for flesh is kesel, which means power. Job 15, 27 says, for he has covered my face with his fat and made his thighs, that's that word kesel, heavy with flesh. Why does this word mean power? Because the word kesel means thighs or loins as a reference to the strength of our humanity both in physical strength, but also because of our power to create life. The core of our bodies are the center of our power. The Hebrew language, they understand that, right? Language is to communicate. Language is a poetic side to language. And so the Hebrew people said, hey, we want to find a word that communicates power. We want to find a word that communicates strength. And so they picked this word that can also be translated thigh or loin because they understood that when God created man, he gave us a measure of strength. He gave us the power to create life. He gave us strength in our physical bodies to do amazing things. I love when I turn on the TV and I have no idea what I want to do for the next couple of hours except just be a couch potato. And I come across some obscure sports network and they've got a whole marathon of days of the strongest men competitions, right? You see any of those? I know, yeah. So, I, and, and then inevitably the next day I go to the gym, right? And But I don't go again for the next three months. But I'm inspired by these feats of strength that these men do. My favorite one, I call it the Fred Flintstone, is when they strap a car. They cut the bottom out, right? The Flintstones, they cut the bottom out. They strap the car to the guy, and he's walking with a car on his shoulder. I'm just trying to do 10 push-ups, right? This guy's walking with a car, right? You, 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 anybody else seen this? These World Strongest Men come to right? They're pulling buses with a rope in their mouth, and they're picking up stones that no human being should ever even look at, much less think that they're going to pick that up. I pray that they've already had whatever children they're hoping to have because all that's out the window for them, right? You with me? Incredible strength. We have power in our physical bodies that God gave to us. Now, most of us that are just normal, even us, even ourselves, there is great strength in this physical body. Kessel. It doesn't just mean power. It doesn't just mean strength. It also means folly. It's a fascinating word. Fascinating word. Ecclesiastes 7.25, I directed my mind to know, to investigate, and to seek wisdom and an explanation, and to know the evil of folly, quesel, and the foolishness, folly, casell of madness. Psalm 49.13, this is the way of those who are foolish, casell, and of those after them who approve of Of their words. Now why is this word? Why did the Jewish people say, hey, let's take this word for power. Let's let's take this word that means human strength and human ability. Let's also use it to mean folly. Why would they do that? Because they understood that there are limits to human strength. There are limits to our power. We are not indestructible. We are not undefeatable, and we are not all-powerful. So the Hebrew people said, hey, this is part of the poetic side of language. Let's take this same word that means strength. Let's take this same word that means power. And let's also use it to mean folly and foolishness. Because if you live your life and the only confidence you have is in your own strength, if the only confidence that you have is in your own power, and you're not willing to recognize that even with the strength that you have, even with the power that you have, even if you can pull an airplane with your teeth, it's attached to a rope, right? You're still in need of the power of God at work in your life. The destiny that you've been called to live, the accomplishments that you're supposed to do, the character that's supposed to come alive inside of you, even though God has given us great strength, we are still desperate for Him. And a person that rejects God, it's the ultimate act of foolishness and folly. If you're just going to rely on your own strength, if you're just going to rely on your own ability, the Jewish people said there is nothing that is a better picture of folly and foolishness than that. Let's just talk for a minute about what's happening in our society, especially in the National Football League with all these stories of abuse that are coming out. This This is it right here. It's folly and foolishness. Because people can rise to such stardom in our society. People can rise to such places of influence that they begin to adopt a mindset that I'm above the law. They begin to adopt a mindset that my strength, whether it's their physical strength or their strength of influence, that I am so needed and I am so important that I don't have to live by the same rules that the rest of society has to live by. It's folly. It's foolishness. It's this idea of case that is out of control. And we just wanna take a moment here to say too because a lot of times people that are trapped by people who have that kind of mindset, especially in abusive relationships, what we wanna say to you, if you're here tonight and that's you, we're here to help you. We're here to help you. If you're trapped in a relationship that is physically abusive, if you're trapped in a relationship where you feel like you are not safe, there are ways that we can help you privately that protect your dignity. If you've got a family and kids, this is one of the ways that people control other people is through these threats, not just to them. And what we want to say to you is you don't have to live like that, not for another day. Not for another day. All right. But this word, you know what else it means? It means hope. It's powerful, isn't it? It's powerful. It it means hope. Now, I'm going to read this first verse out of the New American Standard, but then the next one I'm going to read out of the New King James because this word, it can be translated confidence or it can be translated hope, but they kind of mirror each other. Proverbs 3.26 says this. It says, For the Lord will be your confidence, it's the word kaisel, and will keep your foot from being caught. Psalm 78, 7 says that they may set their hope, come on, Kessel, they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. When my confidence is in my own strength and power, that's foolishness and folly. But when my confidence is in God's strength and power, to the degree that from the world's perspective I am being foolish, well, that's hope. Let me read that again. When my confidence is in my own strength and power, that's foolishness and folly. But when my confidence is in God's strength and power, to the degree that from the world's perspective I'm being foolish, that's hope. It's the virtue of hope. It's the kind of hope that God is saying, if my spirit is alive inside of you, which it is if you've made a vow of devotion to Christ, there is a kind of hope that is supposed to well up inside of you that when the world sees it, they're not even sure what's happening and they can't stop asking you about it. All right, so I told you I was going to give you the end of the story. Some of you haven't heard anything that I've said since I said that because you just wanted to know the end of the story, but that's okay, sorry. Menorahs and Beatitudes. If you've been observant, whenever you see a picture of a manure, you might notice that sometimes there are seven reservoirs for oil and sometimes there are nine. I didn't know that until this week. Sometimes there's seven and sometimes there's nine. The original manures were always seven. Seven. Because seven is the number of completion, and, and to the Jewish people, that represented the fullness of God, that he was complete, right? The number of man in the Bible is six, because we're not complete. That's why we need him, and so, so so they understood in this practice of Jewish religion, there were seven parts to this sacred candle that was in the temple, and because it represented the fullness of God, the presence of God, and they came saying, we're, in, we're desperate without you, and so it was always seven, it was always seven, and then all of a sudden, there comes this moment in history in 165 B.C., where Jesus. Judas Maccabee, he does the impossible, and they win this great victory, and when they go back to the temple to restore it and to cleanse it and to resume the practices of Judaism that were so sacred to them, they only had enough oil for one day. There were seven reservoirs on this menorah, but it burned for eight. For eight days. Only enough oil for one day. It burned for eight. God giving them enough time, come on, to gather the oil that they needed, to put it through the process of, of, of being made holy according to the religious practices that he had given to them in the Mosaic Law. So right on the perfect day and when they needed to replenish their, their inventory and, and the, 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 those seven reservoirs could be filled again. It's the celebration of Hanukkah that Jewish people still practice today, which means dedication. That's what the word Hanukkah means. They're celebrating the dedication of the temple that was cleansed under the leadership of the priest by the name of Judas Maccabees. This menorah has nine reservoirs for oil because they want to acknowledge the eight days that it burned, but there's a ninth one that sits above the rest because they understand that God is the one who did the miracle on that day. Now, this is just my own idea. And maybe it's a little bit too far-fetched for you, but I'm a little far-fetched, and so that's just who I am. I think that when Jesus was on that mountainside, he could have given 20 Beatitudes, he could have given two, he could have given 50, but he gave eight. And I think he gave eight for a reason, because he knew the mindset of his audience. He knew that the people were there we're coming to him and sitting at his feet and saying, Would you not set us free? Would you not lead us? In a moment of history, like moments of great judges in our past, the last one was this great man, Mattathias, would you not enable us to rise up again and walk in our destiny of God's chosen people in freedom? I think they came looking for an eight-day miracle, but Jesus was there to give them an eightfold promise they came longing, waiting, desiring, hoping that there was going to be another eight-day miracle in the story of the Jewish people. And Jesus was looking at them and saying, I could do that for you. We could do it today. I could bring legions of angels. We We could win. We could vanquish Rome. But empires, they rise and fall. Political freedom, It comes and goes. Human strength rises and human strength wanes, but he's saying, I'm here to tell you that there is a different kind of hope. You've sold out for that hope. I'm here to tell you a different kind of hope, a hope that transcends circumstances. I'm here to tell you about a hope that even if you are living under the most impressive empire of the world and people are dying all around you and you might be next, there can still be a hope that you can have in your heart that not even death can take from you. And Jesus is saying that's the kind of hope that I've come to teach you about. If you want to walk in a place of in your mind and in your heart that we at this church call heaven now, heaven forever, Jesus says, I will show you that way. And it just looks different from the rest of the world. It looks like these eight things that would one day be called Beatitudes. i going to invite the worship team to come back up. Isaiah 26. Isaiah 26. Three and four. Love these verses. You will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you. All whose thoughts are fixed on you. Trust in the Lord always, for the Lord God is the eternal rock. Stand with me. Father, I don't know the situation and the circumstance of all the people that are here tonight, but you know them. And I've had, Father, such a growing sense all week that there were going to be people here tonight, and they came to this service with the mindset and the mentality like many of the people came to you, Jesus, 2,000 years ago. That they've been bombarding you with questions and, and, and pleas for help about the circumstances of their life. And it's not that you don't care about the circumstances of their life. It's not that you're not concerned for the pain and the suffering that they're in, but that you want to have a different kind of conversation with them tonight. And I pray, Father, that that through this time that we've spent together in your word, that, that maybe there is a listening ear that has been birthed inside of them, that something inside of them would hope against hope would believe when everybody else says that they should give up. Should set aside despair when it seems to be the only thing that's calling their name. That they today, as we step into this song, in this moment of worship, God, that something supernatural would happen inside of them. They came here today with an empty lamp. but That you're going to put an oil called your spirit inside of them that has a supply that is without limit, and that hope would come alive in their heart. In Jesus's name, let's worship.